My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. So glad you're here. If you've been with us or this is your first time with us in, this, in the last couple of weeks, um, we've been going through a series called Our Father. We've been going through what we believe is Jesus teaching us how to pray. And then we've been going through six weeks of it because there's six petitions, six requests in the prayer. And so this is our final week. We're concluding the series and we're going to talk about the sixth petition. And so I'm going to have you open up your Bibles if you want to Matthew chapter 6. Um, is this where the Lord's Prayer is? Or we're going to have the Wall Bible come up. But what we're going to do here is we're going to pray this together. This is going to be our prayer this morning. It's our last time to say it. As we've been teaching through this series, it really helps us as we pray these words for them to come alive in our prayer. So if you would join me this morning, we're going to have it come up here on the screen. Say this with me. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Amen. Amen. That's our prayer. That is, that is our prayer today. So... Uh, I'm going to take you for a flashback. I'm going to show you, I'm going to kind of go back in time for some of you here. Uh, 2009 is when I graduated high school. I know, that's like, for some of you, it's like a different perspective. Either he's really young or he's, yeah, maybe he's a little older than I thought he was. And uh, regardless is, I'm probably pretty young, 27. Uh, But uh, times have changed. Things continue to change. And uh, when I entered into high school. I was a freshman. It was, I think it was like 2005, if I'm doing my math right, somewhere right there. Uh, believe it or not, uh, I, liked to, I, I liked the school dances. I thought they were something kind of cool. I was a little bit of a wallflower maybe at some points, but I, I did like the dances, uh, as everyone does. As everyone wants to just go to, the, go to the school dances, homecoming, prom, whatever it is, and, and get boogie with it. And so believe it or not, back in my freshman year, entering in my, my first homecoming dance, I had a crush on a girl. And I decided that I would uh, somehow get the confidence and the courage to ask her to the, to the homecoming dance. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm insecure, um, I'm afraid, and I, for some reason there was confidence inside of me somewhere to go and ask this girl to the dance. And I'm just going to give you a paraphrased answer of what she said. No. And... Uh, it, it, it kind of broke me a little bit. Uh, I'm still preaching about it here, however many years later. So obviously it impacted me very deeply. No, I'm just kidding. I, uh, I moved on. And uh, little did I know she saved me so much 
so much uh, money, really, is what it comes back to, and other details. Because as I moved on to my sophomore year, I was dating a girl at this time. And so we were going to homecoming, and I realized that there's so many details that go into getting ready for a dance. So many details. And so uh, if you're not careful, you can, you can mess up some of the details. And, and they're kind of unsaid rules, like girls buy the tickets to the dance, and guys end up buying the, the dinner that night. And usually dinner's probably more expensive than the tickets to the dance. And uh, you got to decide where you're going to go to dinner at. If it's homecoming, you know, you don't want to, you don't go anywhere too nice. But if it's like a prom, then you kind of step it up maybe a little bit. And then there's other untold things. Like the girl gets to pick the color of the dress, you know, that she wants to wear. And as a guy, you, you need to like have like a tie or something maybe that matches the color of the dress. It's kind of an important quality to have. Maybe not when you went to the dance, but it, it is sometimes because um, you might show up to the dance. And if you're not wearing somewhat of the same color, no one would know you're at the dance together. And that would be just a, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be good for Facebook pictures or Instagram pictures because, then they wouldn't know if you're going as a date or you're going as friends. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but the truth is, is there's just, there's all these little details. Then you got to get into like, whose, fr- whose parents are you going to go with? Are you going to go with her parents? Are you going to go with your parents? Whose friends are you going to go with her friends? Are you going to go with your friends? Maybe you're the same group of friends. It can make or break the night, really. Who you're going with, who you're hanging out with. The whole night is made off of this. And are you, maybe, maybe you decide to take a limo or you have one, if you can drive, do you drive which car? And all these little details that go into the night. And the reality is, is all that you want to do is just get boogie with it at the end of the night. You just want to get to the dance. You just want to have a good time. That's what the whole night's about, having fun. But there's sometimes all these details that you got to get right before you get to the dance. And some of you are like, Taylor, what, what does this have to do with the sixth petition today? Nothing. No, I'm just kidding. It has everything to do with it. Because the truth is, when it comes to following Jesus, and, and, and following Jesus can be so difficult in moments in our lives, and other moments it can feel like, man, this is going great. But when we're following Jesus, there's going to be tough moments. There's going to be moments where we're going to be tempted to turn away from Jesus. We're going to be tempted to pick something over Jesus, over God in our, in our walk. And the truth is, is that we are going to need the sixth petition. We're going to need this petition like we need air in our lungs. Because God, sometimes we're all excited about getting to the dance or getting to our calling, we'll call it, or where God has called us to, we believe, in our, in our walk with Jesus. And we're looking at that calling. And sometimes what we want to do is we want to we race ahead to the calling. We want to race ahead to where we believe God, the dream he has given us. That's where we want to go. And so when we get excited and we want to go to that dream and we want to run to that dream, sometimes we can just race ahead and forget that God wants to build some foundational blocks in us before we get there. He wants to build our integrity. He wants to build our character. He wants to build some values in us before he takes us to where he calls us. And that can be tough because oftentimes when we know where God is leading us, we want to race ahead. We want to just get to the dance. We don't want to worry about all the details that we have to get right before getting to the dance. We just want to go. We want to get there because we're excited about it. But the truth is, is that in life we are going to be deterred. We're going to be tempted and pulled off course if we're not too careful. And so therefore, as we read this sixth petition today, and we're going to look at this on the screen, it says, And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Like I said, we, we need this, like we need air in our lungs, like we need breath in our lungs, because the truth is every day is going to be filled with temptations to steer off course, to give up our calling, to forfeit our following Jesus, to let that go and to pick something else that is not God's desire. 
We're going to be tempted every single day. And the truth is, we are humans. We are prone to sin. When given the choice to sin and not to sin, we're going to lead towards sinning because we have a flesh inside of us that wants our own desires, that wants our own needs, that maybe do not align with the Father's desires or the Father's will or the Father's kingdom. And so the truth is, is we need to pray this because we are so prone to falling to temptation, to giving in, to not, we're going to be tempted, but we could give in to the temptation and it becomes sin in our lives. And so therefore, we need to be praying this. We need to be calling on the kings of kings, the Lord of lords to deliver us, that when we walk into moments, that God would even protect us from walking into moments where we could fall, where we could fail. And so we need this like we need breath in our lungs. But I think one of the best ways to understand temptation and how it works is to look at how Jesus encountered temptation. How Jesus walked through temptation because Jesus was tempted. Because Jesus is fully human and he's also fully God. And so I think one of the best accounts is we're going to see is we're going to walk through Jesus faced three temptations in an account with the enemy. And if we see how he combated them and how the enemy tried to tempt him, we can kind of understand maybe a little bit more how temptation works and how it impacts our lives. Because as we'll see here in this first temptation up on the screen, we can kind of see that it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. And so as we see this verse here, we understand something so crazy about following Jesus. That sometimes, in some moments in our lives, we're going to be led into seasons where temptation is going to be there at the forefront. And I'm not saying that God causes temptation because that's not God's character. God does not tempt He does not do it. The enemy, Satan, is the author of temptation. He's the one who does it. But we will be in seasons and we will be in moments where God allows us to enter into what could be a testing period. And God does not cause that temptation. Let me remind you. God does not do it. Not his character. Not his ability. He does not tempt. That is the enemy. That is Satan. But God will allow us. He allows us to walk on a sinful planet where there's temptation everywhere. And so we need to understand something. That we can be following Jesus and temptation can be right there in front of us. And it's not caused by Jesus, but it can be there because the enemy is prevalent. And our flesh might desire that more than it does of following Jesus. It's us where the temptation is going to come alive and if we're not too careful. And so as we see this, we need to see that the Spirit's what led Jesus into the wilderness, Right? It's so powerful, so impactful. But even more than that, as we look beyond this temptation story about, that we're about to walk through, we need to understand that Jesus' ministry actually blew up in a good way. It took off right after this temptation. That actually right before, right, right after the moments of temptation, right after the moments of what has been testing in his life, testing of his character, testing of his value, Jesus' ministry takes off in a good way. It blows up. And so the same thing happens in our life. When we look at this and we see how the enemy works and we see how it is, it's the moments where you're about to take your biggest step towards Jesus. Your biggest moment towards Jesus that the enemy comes in and he starts putting doubts in your mind and starts putting ideas that aren't true in your mind. It's the moment right before you're going to get baptized that you're going to go under that water that day of that the enemy's like, that's who you are. You're a sinner. You're, not, you're, you're just going to fail when you go under that water. When you come back up out of that water, you're going to enter in to sin again. So why are you getting baptized? This isn't real. This isn't what you, this isn't you. You're just putting on a fake. And that's not true, but that's what the enemy wants you to believe. And there's going to be moments where you're about ready to surrender your life to Christ. And you're like, I'm ready. I believe. And the enemy's like, this isn't real. Don't give your life away. Don't do this. It's fake. How could you believe in something like this? But you're about to enter into an eternal, eternal relationship with the Father. It's in our biggest moments for the kingdom. Even in our small moments that the enemy is at work. When we're trying to take steps towards Jesus. When we start coming around church and we're like, hey, this place is pretty cool. 
Like there's actually some genuine people who love and care about me here. And, I'm, and you're like, man, I need to get plugged in. I need to kind of maybe come around a little bit. And that's about the time that the work schedule starts stacking up and all of a sudden it gets super busy and maybe some family plans start stacking up. And you're like, wait a second, I don't got time for church. I don't got time for this. And you're like, does the enemy really work that way? Yes, I believe the enemy will do anything he can to keep you from your calling and to keep you from pursuing Jesus. If he can keep you distracted, he's going to do it. I believe in that in my whole heart, and I know that, that he will do that. Because this is such a great place. Church is an amazing place. The church is an amazing group of people, and you need to be plugged in. But the enemy will do whatever he can to keep you isolated, to keep you away, because that's what the enemy does best. And so we're going to walk into this first temptation. We're going to see how this works here. He says, during that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scripture said, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, as we see this, we're coming off the heels of Jesus being fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So therefore, to say that Jesus is hungry would be an understatement. He hasn't, been, he hasn't been eating anything, really. And so what we see in fasting is removing something that we find a dependence in so that we can remove that to find a dependence in God. And so that's what Jesus has been doing. It's a, it's a, it's a biblical practice that we see throughout the Bible. And so we see people fast today to remove something, a dependency in food, so that they can find even a greater dependency in Christ and God being their provider. And so here Jesus has, what he's done is he's saying, hey, I'm not my provider the Father's my provider. And all of a sudden the enemy comes in. He says, turn those stones into bread. He's saying, hey, you should be your provider. You should be your provider in this. He's saying, you do it. Be your own provi- provider. Be your own, so be, be your own sufficiency in this, in this situation. And the truth is, is he's going after Jesus to do this, to be this. And Jesus is looking at him. And what does he do? He goes... Uh, He uses scripture. He uses the word of God. He says, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, I see this as a surface level temptation. I kind of see it on the surface. It's it's a physical temptation. You can see it coming. Not to say that its impact is not uh, drastic and can really rattle your life, but you can see it coming for what it's worth. It's when you start coveting after something you shouldn't be coveting. It's when you start lusting after something you should not be lusting after. When you start talking to someone you shouldn't be talking to. When you start looking at something you shouldn't be looking at, you can see, you know the impacts of what it could have. You see where it could really end up. But it's at the surface. You can see it coming. You can see it coming. And so here we have Jesus, though. He says, how do you battle this? You battle this with the Word of God. you got to know the Word of God. This is why I think it's so important that you know your Bible. Pastor James sent out his Bible reading plan for the year at the beginning of 2018. He said, he sent this out to us because he understands the value in knowing the word of God. That you need to know the truth. That this scripture is God breathed. That God has left this here for us as the truth to stand by on a foundation. So that when the enemy comes and tries to tell us something that's not true. That we can stand on this and go, no, no, no. We know what is true. And so that's why you need to know the word of God. Because it's your best weapon to combat the enemy. To combat him for the lies and the insecurities he's going to put in your mind. This is why it's the most important thing. But the enemy is so tricky. He's so good that as we see the second temptation come up, we understand that the enemy gets a little bit better here. And so he says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. 
And we see this right here that the enemy gets a little bit trickier. He says, oh, you're going you're gonna to combat me with the word of God? Well, I'm, I'm going to show, I'll give you some scripture myself. I'll give you a verse here myself. And so that's why it's so important that we know the Bible in the right context. It's so important that we understand the Bible for what it's worth. Because all of a sudden, some of you are like, well, I'm going I'm to do, do what the enemy did here. I'm going I'm to test. I'm gonna, what he, the enemy tries to do here is to have Jesus test God. He's like, jump off. See if God will save you. See if God loves you. And all of a sudden, we start getting this idea that we're going to test God. It's like, no, 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 no. Not if we know the word of God. We don't, we're not testing God. Some of you are like, man, I don't know. I'm, I'm here at church today because I'm unsure if I should leave my marriage. Like, I, I, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeking. I'm wondering. And, and if you know the word of God, you understand the answer to that question. It says, let no one separate what God has made one. You're looking for your answer. You're looking for this miraculous sign that, that Jesus is going to be saved jumping off a temple when really all we need is the word of God. It's the truth. It's what we stand on. And so you got your answer right there. It's not big and extravagant. It's in the word of God, which is amazing. And so what I love even more about this, though, is the enemy tries to get us to want to test God, to really see if he loves us, if he really cares about us, if he, if he truly lo- is an unconditional love for us, right? But as you can see, this is when we start testing God, we start questioning God's character, which means we start questioning our perception of who God is, which means we're questioning the relationship. And you can see this in the scripture. It says, if you are the son of God, jump off. If you are the son of God. That's how the enemy's best work. Once we sin, once we fall into temptation, all of a sudden we get to this idea that like, we've done the unforgivable. Is there, is, can we truly be loved by God? Are we forgiven for that sin for when I'm 16 years old? You've always been a user. You're never going to be forgiven. You're never going to get, you lost your virginity too young. It's like, man, also we start thinking that God can't love us in the midst of what sin we've committed, of what's happened to us. And to do that is not to understand the grace that comes from the cross. But that's what the enemy does. He gets us to question God's love, question our relationship as a son or a daughter of the king, of our God, of the father. That's what the enemy does. He makes us question how God really feels towards us. He'll make us question our relationship. And when he can do that, it gets even better because the enemy is so much stronger. As we get into this third third temptation here, it says... Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. Man, this is a powerful one. First off, don't worship Satan. There's the temptation. But even bigger than that, what I see here is he is making, he's giving Jesus the opportunity to throw away his purpose. Because he takes him up to this, to this high mountain, right? This very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, it's yours. You just got to worship me. That's all you got to do. Just worship me. And the truth was, if we know our Bible, if we know our scripture, that all the kingdoms Jesus sees are already his. They're already his. The problem is, is that Not the problem, but really the solution is is that he has to go to the cross and to die for the sins of the world and then be raised from the grave to inherit all these kingdoms because him and God are one, because they're his, that the Father is going to give them to him. They're his. They're already his. But then he's like, you can just take a shortcut. Here's a shortcut. You don't have to take a death. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to do any of this. They're yours. All you got to do is worship me. 
But to do that would mean there was no humiliating death. There'd be no death that would set us right because we need the death. We need a sinless Savior. If he gives in to this, he's not sinless anymore. He's, been, he's given in to temptation. Jesus was sinless. And because he was sinless, he was the perfect sacrifice for us. And by him going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world, for yours and for mine, we get a perfect relationship with the Father. That was Jesus' purpose, to set us right with the Father, that we could come into this perfect relationship, that sin was no longer a divide between us because the death on the cross removes it. As long as we believe in that truth that Jesus went to the cross for our sins, we believe that in our heart and we confess that with our mouth, then all of a sudden we get a right relationship with the Father. That we are made right. And so as you can see though, he's trying to get Jesus to forfeit his purpose and he'll do the same thing with all of us. He'll try to get us to forfeit our purpose, to forfeit our calling, to make us try to take shortcuts to the calling, to run ahead of God and say, no, 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 you can do this, you're good enough. And some of you in the room are saying, that's great, Taylor, I, I see all that. We can kind of see how, how temptation works. All of a sudden, there's the temptation, right? And the first temptation, we see it happen. It's right at the, it comes, we see it, all of a sudden we fall. Because we're humans, and we fall, and that's what we do. When we make mistakes and we sin. And so all of a sudden, as we get to the second temptation, we see this idea of like, once we sin, then we question our relationship. We question our view with God. We question where we're at with God. And then as we get to the third one here at the bottom, we see this idea of the purpose. Once we start questioning our relationship, then we let go of our purpose. Then we go, we start questioning the faith. We start questioning the cross. We start questioning it all. We say, you know what? I've tried this God thing out. I don't really think it works. It hasn't changed my life around. It hasn't done me any favors. And that's the approach we take. So all of a sudden what we do is we throw out our faith. And when we throw out our faith, we throw out our purpose and we throw out our calling. And some of you are like, yeah, I'm there, Taylor. I've gone too far. I've gone way beyond what's acceptable. I'm in such a big hole, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And the truth is, is you think you're there, but a lot of us are there. A lot of us have committed sins. You're like, no, 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 I've done the unthinkable, Taylor. I've done what no one should be doing. And I say, if you think there isn't room for you in a relationship with the Father, then you don't understand the cross. You don't understand grace. You don't understand how it works because what you need to understand is that Jesus comes and he spends his life down here for 33 years. And the last three years of his life is when his ministry is really happening. And in that ministry, at the very beginning of those three years, he grabs 12 men and he asks them to follow him. And how this works is he goes and he prays about it. He's got, he's got all these people he prays about. It. And, the, and the father says, and him and the father are praying. All of a sudden from that prayer, he comes out and he picks 12 men. He picks 12 guys, and they start doing life together, and they're having intimate moments together, and they're, and they're sleeping in the same quarters together, and they're farting together, and they're doing so much. Pick your best friend, and these 12 men are closer than you and your friend are because they're inseparable, because they have left everything to follow Jesus. Family, careers, a whole life, a whole past, they have left it all to follow Jesus. That's what they've done. Because they, they, there's something more in following Jesus. There's something more beyond fishing. There's something more beyond cheating people on their taxes through in following Jesus. And they see that and they understand that. And they get that. And so they're following Jesus and they're so close. This is the, one of the closest group, a team of friends that are following Jesus and learning from Jesus. 
At one point, Jesus sends them out on mission and they're, and they're, and they're doing life together and they're, they're casting out demons. They're baptizing people. They're, they're on mission. They're seeing the unthinkable happen. They've watched Jesus heal people together. They've seen Jesus teach about the kingdom together. They've seen it all. If there's any group of 12 that have like no reason to not believe, it's these 12 because they've been up close and personal. But the truth is, is with some of us who've been around the church long enough know there's one disciple in particular that decides that, you know what, I'm going to betray Jesus. I'm going to betray him. His name's Judas. And the truth was, is Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him from the very beginning. Judas, or Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. And so because even though he knows that, he still picks him. He still goes to prayer because Jesus is fully human, but he's fully God. And he knows it, and he predicts it. And so we see this, that even though he knows, he still picks Judas to be in his 12. He still loves this guy anyways. Judas is the treasure of the group. That means he's like trusted with the money. That all the money this group of 12 has, Judas is keeping track of. That's Judas. And what's even crazier in this, we know he's going to betray him. And we, we fast forward to this, the last meal, the last meal of Jesus' freedom before he's handed over and betrayed by Judas to the religious leaders to die on the cross for the sins of the world, which we know is good, but G- Judas betrays him still. Judas does the unthinkable. Jesus knows this is going to happen. He knows it's going to happen, but it does not stop Jesus from loving Judas. Because there comes a moment when they go in for this final meal that they're all sitting around and all of a sudden Jesus gets down. He starts washing the feet of Judas. He washes all 12 disciples' feet, but he also washes Judas' feet. And he washes the dirt and he washes the grime. What a, what a love, what a, what a compassion for Judas. He knows he's going to do it. He knows he's going to do it. He knows he's going to hand him over for 30 pieces of silver to the religious leaders. But Jesus still gets down and he still loves Judas regardless of knowing what's to come. That's the love of the Father. That's the love of Jesus Christ. And then we keep going into the dinner night and all of a sudden Jesus says a statement. He goes, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. And all of a sudden all of them start, they start looking around. They're like, who's going to, they're like, they don't know who's, who, who is it? They don't know who's going to betray Jesus. And it's like, how do they not know? We know how the story is. The reason they do not know is because Jesus loved Judas the same as Jesus loved the rest of the disciples. His love was not conditional based on Judas' performance, based on what Judas would do. That's not Jesus' love. It's not conditional. It's unconditional. The Father's love for you is unconditional, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you do, and regardless of what you're going to do. That's the reality. And so as we see this happen, they're all asking each other. They don't know because Jesus has loved Judas just as much as he's loved John, just as much as he's loved Peter, just as much as he's loved James, just like he's loved all of them. And so all of a sudden, Peter, one of the, tw- one of the 12, is on the other side of the table, and he motions over to John, one of the other disciples, who's leaned up against Jesus, and he says, Peter's like, hey, ask Jesus who it is. And so John leans over, and he goes, hey, who is it? And Jesus goes, all right, it's the one in which I dip, dip this bread into this dish and give to. They're like, what? Jesus, can't you just point at him like the rest of us do when we're judging people? Can't you just do that like the rest of us do? We just point fingers when we're, when we're talking about people, when we're saying things about them. We just do that. Can't you do that? No, the one in which I dip this bread in this dish and give, the, give it to. It's like, what? That's weird, Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, hey, this bread basically 
This unleavened bread that would have been around the, which, which would have been around the table, and there would have been a dish in the center of the table that was called chisereth, and he would have been dipped this morsel of bread into this dish and gave it to Judas. That's what's happening. And for him to do that would be for the host, it would be very traditional for the, the host of this dinner to be the person who would dip the bread in the dish. That was the host. But he would give it to the guest of honor. And it's like he's not antagonizing him. He's not making fun of him. He's not doing any of that. He's loving Judas. He's making Judas the guest of honor. He's loving him until the last second, up until the final moment. Because Judas is about to walk away from the table and betray Jesus. And even though he's going to do that, Jesus is going to love him. Jesus loves Judas to the very last second. But the truth is, is that Judas has sinned. He's been tempted by money. He's been tempted by greed. And he's fallen to it. And he's questioned his relationship with Jesus. He's questioned where he stands. All the way to the point where he goes, he betrays Jesus over. He betrays him over to the religious leaders. And all of a sudden he gets 30 pieces of silver for it. And in the moment of his regret, in the moment of his remorse, he tries to give the money back and realizes that he's messed up. And what does Judas do? He goes and he hangs himself. He kills himself. That's what he goes and does. Because he has lost his purpose. Because he has given in to the greatest temptation that we all face. Which is to throw out our faith and to throw out our belief. Even though he saw it all, even though he's seen it all, even though he watched the unthinkable, he's seen the healing, he's seen it all. He's given it up. He's letting it all go. Because he doesn't understand the love of the Father, but more importantly, he just never believed. He never believed that there could be such a love like this. He never believed there could be a Savior. He never believed and had the faith. And then all of a sudden, our story shifts to the other, one of the other disciples, Peter. And as we see Peter come into the scene, what, what we see happen in the story of Peter is Peter was the one who asked John, hey, who was it? Asked Jesus, asked who it was. And so as, this, as we leave the Last Supper, we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and while we're there, Jesus is praying. We catch Jesus praying to the Father, and he leaves three disciples over there, James, John, and Peter. And this is moments before Judas is going to lead the religious leaders up to betray him, to, to hand him over. And so as we see this happen, Jesus is praying to the Father and he comes back to check on, them, on the disciples. And they're sitting there and they are asleep. Asleep. And so then all of a sudden, we see he goes back to pray. And he comes back and they're asleep again. And then he goes back to pray to the Father one last time. And then he goes and he checks the disciples and they're sleeping again. It's like, come on guys, get it right. He, he said to them the very first time, he says, hey, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Like, you need to be praying that you don't give in to temptation, that you don't give in to this. But what they're doing, what's really happening, is they're tired, and they want to sleep. But the truth is, his temptation is about to come. Peter's about to unravel in his walk and his faith of following Jesus. Because he's going to rely on self-sufficiency to get him through, not his dependency on God, not his dependency on prayer. And the truth is, is that that's not who Peter was. Peter was a man who was zealous for Jesus. He's passionate for Jesus. He's all in when it comes to following Jesus. Peter's the guy who walks on water when Jesus calls him to him. Walks on water. He, he's doing the unthinkable. He's being so faithful. Uh, he's also the one who claims Jesus to be the Messiah. Peter is, Peter is the man. Peter is passionate He's grueling, and he's here with the other disciples, and he's, he's falling asleep all of a sudden. But even more than that, 
Jesus all of a sudden is handed away because the religious leaders show up. They take him away. Over, they're going to take him to the high priest's house. And as, as, as this is going on, it says Peter is following them at a safe distance. It's like all of a sudden, Peter, who's been with Jesus the entire time, been with him, close up, tight knit, all the way with him, is all of a sudden not with him anymore because he is at a safe distance. It's like, you want to know if you're going to give in to temptation? You want to know if you're going to give in to all of it? You want to know? It's when you start playing it safe when it comes to following Jesus. When you start keeping a distance, like you're like, I'm only going to come to church so often. I only got so much time in my schedule. I don't want to get too much in because Jesus, it's kind of weird. There's people in there that start like raising their hands during worship. They start praising Jesus and all this stuff. And it's like, it's kind of weird. It's a little too Christian-y for me. I don't want to do it. You're playing it safe. I'm not saying you got to raise your hands. I'm not saying you got to be all this stuff. We worship Jesus how we choose to worship Jesus. But what I'm saying is there's people in here who are all in when it comes to following Jesus. There's also some of us who are keeping it, Jesus at a safe distance. And what we do when we keep Jesus at a safe distance is we're saying, hey, we're going we're, we're gonna to be self-sufficient on what we can do. We're gonna, we can be our provider. We can do what we need to do. And the truth is, is that is not the way of following Jesus. Because Peter, who is passionate, faithful, doing crazy stuff, and probably looked ridiculous half the time, walking on water, right? And uh, all of a sudden, we come in and and on the story, and he is at a safe distance. He's not up close and with Jesus anymore. And so they lead Jesus into the high priest's home, and it's going to be in a courtyard, and there's going to be a fire in the middle. And so there have been some people hanging around the fire, some servants and stuff. And so Peter would have got in, got around the fire at this point, And Jesus would be on trial with his back turned to Peter while Peter's sitting here at the fire. And all of a sudden, someone looked at Peter and they go, hey, you're one of the followers. You're, you're one of the people who have been following Jesus. Yep, I'm, I'm, one of the, I'm one of the people who have been following Jesus. No, he didn't say that. He said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. He denies Jesus. And so then also the story goes on a little bit more, and all of a sudden someone else speaks up and goes, hey, no, you're one of the 12. You're, you're, you're with him. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Denies him a second time. All of a sudden it goes on a little bit more, and a man speaks up. He says, you must be one of them. You've got a Galilean accent. And the reason that would have mattered is because Jesus was from Galilee. And all of a sudden Peter goes, I don't know what you're talking about. He's denied Jesus three times. Like, Peter. You could have got it right. You could, you could at least like the second time maybe got No, no, no. Three times he denies Jesus. And on this third one it says he starts cursing and everything. He's coming unraveled under pressure. He's coming unraveled under fear. He's coming unraveled. This passionate, zealous Peter is falling apart in his walk of following Jesus. It's coming undone. And as he makes that third one of denying Jesus, that third remark, what happens all of a sudden is the rooster is... The rooster is going to crow later that morning. And Peter remembers that before that rooster is going to crow, that Jesus told him earlier that day that he is going to deny him three times. He's going to deny him. Because Jesus and Peter had a conversation earlier in the day. And he, and he says, and Jesus says to Peter, he says, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny me three times. And so in that moment, before the rooster crows, all of a sudden, Jesus looks at Peter, in the midst of his third denial, Jesus, Peter's just denied Jesus for the third time, and Jesus, with his back turned, all of a sudden it says, turned around and looked at Peter. He makes eye contact with Peter in the midst of Peter's third denial, right there in the moment. And most of us would look at that and go, 
Jesus is looking at him going, oh man, I, I told you so. I can't believe this. I told you early in the day this was going to happen. I can't believe you, Peter. How could you not get it right? And if for any of us to even think that's what Jesus' response is, we're dead wrong. Because if we know our Bible, we know that Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He did not come to condemn. That is not a condemnation in that look. That is a look when he's looking at Peter in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his worst denial. He's looking at him with so much love, so much mercy, so much grace, so much of it. Because that's the love of the Father. That's the love of God, that in the midst of our sin, in the midst of a denying, in the midst of trying to turn to something else, whether it's fear, whether it's money, whether it's something else out there that we think is going to give us purpose, and turn to that, Jesus loves us in the midst of it. That's the love of the Father. And Peter remembers those words. That's what it says. It says, those words flash through his eyes. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. That's what Peter remembers as he looks at Jesus. And he runs away weeping bitterly, it says. He weeps. But the truth is, is that sometimes we can do some of the greatest things, right? We could be on fire for Jesus, making great decisions, great things. We could be doing awesome things. And someone will come up to us and say, you're doing this, this, and this really well. And they say, hey, but I got one critique for you. You know, this, this, and that. And when we come back from that, and even though they said oh, 95% of the conversation was about everything good we're doing in our review or whatever it is or our conversation or anything, they come up to us and all we do is we remember that 5%. We don't remember all the good stuff they say. We don't remember that because we remember the critique. We remember the negative. That's what we hold on to. That's what we do. And so as we look at Peter in this story, he's holding on to what Jesus said earlier in the day. And Jesus did say that. Those were the words that flashed through his mind. Jesus did say those words. But that is not all of the story. That is not everything Jesus said. Because Jesus also said this to him earlier in the day. Moments before he said, you're going to deny me three times. He said, Simon, Simon, which is Peter's formal name. He said, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Hmm. I pleaded in prayer for you. I have pleaded in prayer for you. I, I'm praying for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. Peter, that your faith would not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brother. Satan is out to, out to kill, steal, and destroy. That is, that is the purpose of Satan. That is what he's here to do. But all of a sudden, we see this, and we understand something here. There's a word in here that I'd like to point out to you. And it's a five-letter word, and it's called again. Again. So when you have repented and turned to me again. It's like, Peter, we've been here before. Simon, we've been here before. This isn't new territory. Yeah, you denied me. You know, you're going to deny me. It's, it's pretty bad. But th- we've been here before. Remember when you walked on water? Remember when you had all that faith and you walked on the water? And then moments later you took your eyes off me and you sunk into the water and you looked all silly. Remember that moment? Or how about the moment when you called me the Messiah? You called me the Messiah, and then moments later, I had to, you were trying to tell me what the will of God was, and your, your perspective was not aligned with the will of God. And I had to say, get behind me, Satan. Right after you called me the Messiah, I had to say, get behind me, Satan, to you. We've been here before, Peter. We've been here before. This isn't the first time. 
That the Christian walk is not about being perfect. It's not about getting dotting all the I's, crossing the T's, not about living a perfect life. If that was the case, we probably shouldn't be here. That is not the Christian walk. That is not how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live a life of following Jesus. That in the, in the moment, you're going to feel like you've, you've dropped it all. That there's going to be that sin that's unforgivable. That sin that no one will forgive you for. That sin that you can't let go of. But the truth is, is that is not the Christian walk. The Christian walk is a walk of again. Not that we should continue sinning because of grace. That is not what Jesus calls us to do. But that in the moments of where we have fallen off the path, where we have given in, that we should turn to Jesus again. That we shouldn't give it up. That we shouldn't, once we fall on the temptation, and all of a sudden we should start questioning our relationship where God is at. We start getting to this point, and we also get to this point where we question our faith and we question our purpose. Jesus said, don't go, go, don't go kill yourself. Don't go giving up on church. Don't go giving up on me. That's not how I work. That's not how my love works. That when you mess up, that when you fall short, when you're trying to follow Jesus with the best of your ability of pursuing and loving Christ, that when you fall short, that you should not give up. You should do it again. You should get up again. And you should run to Jesus again with everything you have in you, with everything you got left, that you should live a zealous, passionate life for Jesus, that the Christian walk is not about getting it perfect. And so you're like, hey, I haven't fallen that far. I haven't gone anywhere. The point is, is he's trying to teach Peter a core value in his following Jesus. Peter's ministry is about to blow up. It's about to take off in a good way. It's about to go through the roof. Because moments later, we're going to find out that Peter's going to go and he's going to strengthen his brothers, his purpose. He's going to go strengthen the other disciples that are still there. And then he's going to go and he's going to preach to thousands that are going to come to know Jesus. Because he didn't give up. Because when the moment came to let go of his faith, to let it all go, to give up on everything, he didn't. He didn't. That he got to this low moment, he ran away crying, but he was restored. He turned back. He was converted to Jesus. He didn't give up, and we can't either. And you think something's unforgivable? That is not the way of the cross. That is not how grace works. Grace abounds. Grace overflows. I don't know what you got going on. I don't know what you're wrestling with, but the wrestle you don't need to do anymore. You can surrender. You can repent. You can let go. You don't have to do it. It's about being forgiven. That grace covers it. There might be some consequences, yes. But there's nothing you can do to make God not love you. There's no temptation you can give into that God wouldn't go for you. He wouldn't pursue you. He wouldn't run to you. He wouldn't look for you in the distance. He would go after you. And he does every single day. He never lets go. He never gives up. That's the father we serve. That's the God we run to. That we, when we understand something, that we need prayer in our lives. We need prayer. Because every day is filled with temptation. Every day is filled with something to pick other, something other than God. Every day. And so we need to be praying for God's kingdom, for God's will, for his name to be glorified. Because that's going to make this place feel a lot more like heaven. A lot more like the kingdom of God. That we need to understand that we got to let God be our provider and not give in to that temptation. That we got to understand we're forgiven. we got to pray that and let that bleed into us so we won't clog forgiveness. When we're forgiven, we forgive others. 
And more importantly than that is that we don't, we, we don't, we're not gonna give in to temptation. That we don't, we will have moments, we will fall short, yes. But we gotta understand that God will deliver us from situations if we truly pray this, if we truly believe this. God is gonna deliver us from moments that we didn't even know could have happened. There's moments that you're, you've been avoid, God has helped you avoid temptation in your life that you didn't even know was there because God loves you so much. Prayer has to be everything to us. We have to believe it. We have to understand it's about a relationship and that when we ask the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who loves us regardless of what we've done, regardless of what we'll do, man, we're going to come alive. And so there's two different characters. One ends by giving up his purpose, Judas, but the other one ends by returning and repenting and, and turning back to Jesus again. Some of you today are here and you're thinking, it's the end. I've done it, Taylor. Don't let it be today. Don't give in today. Don't let it be today. Today is not today. Today is the day that God, you're going to see him and he's rescuing you. He's been rescuing you, but today you're going to see it. Don't give up. Don't let go. There's nothing you could do to make God not love you. He's always pursuing. I'm going to give us a chance to respond because I believe God's doing something in some of you in here because he's doing it in me all the time. And I, I want to give you a chance to respond to the message and more importantly, just, just one response. I want you to be, have the opportunity to surrender your life to Christ because some of you have never surrendered. You've never confessed it with your mouth and believed it in your heart. You've never made it real. You've never made it real. And so I'm going to ask you to do that today. I'm going to ask you to say these words because I believe these words are real. I believe in faith. I believe that these are the words that we hold on to, that we have an eternity with the Father when we say these words, that our eternal relationship starts the moment we confess these words, that we say this and we believe in the cross as the power, the death on the cross of Jesus Christ as the power to forgive our sins. And so I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and say these words with me. Father, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, past, present, and future. And on the third day, he was raised from the grave and conquered death. And I want to surrender my life to you, Lord. I want to make you the king of my life. I, don't, I want to surrender and I give you my purpose today. Show me, God. I love you and I want to follow you the rest of the days of my life. Amen. If you said those words, you are now, you're now a part of the kingdom. You now have a relationship with the Father that your sin no longer separates you. You don't need to say it again. You don't ever have to say those words again because it's forever. If you meant those in your heart and you said those with your mouth, you are forever a relationship with the Father. You forever have eternity with the Father. That he loves you and you can see he's gonna be pursuing. You're gonna see how he's pursuing. He's already been pursuing you, but you're gonna see how he's pursuing you. I believe your eyes will be opened even more. God loves you, God cares about you. That's what we believe, and that's what we want to stand on here at sunrise. So I just want to pray for you all who have been entered in and all of us in the room here today and how how God is working in our lives. So let me close with this prayer. And Father, we are so thankful for who you are and what you do. We thank you, Lord that your, your love abounds, that it knows no limits, God, that it doesn't end on our, on our ability to follow you, 
Uh, whether, we're, whether we're denying you, whether we're Peter, and we're, we've, we've had our short moments, we've had our failure. God, don't let us give in to the greatest temptation of giving up our faith, of letting go of it all and surrendering. That's the greatest temptation we face, God. Don't let us give in to that. Don't let us call it quits. Don't let us say this is the end. This is where we're at. Let us believe, Lord, that you're real and that you're alive and that you're pursuing us and that you have a purpose and a calling and you are going to make that happen in your time. And you're going deli- to guide us along this path. You're going to guide us through life, God. And we believe that and we claim that, God, today. We trust in that today, God. And so we surrender to you. Thank you, Lord. May our prayers always come back to the fact that we have a relationship with you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.